0: I'm Susan Moran.
1: And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November thirteenth, two 2012.
0: Coming up, we discuss the future of wind, solar, another renewable technology with Clint Wilder, who co-wrote the book, Clean Tech Nation.
1: And we're going to talk with Dr. Bill Hay about why climate models are underpredicting predicting major changes to the Earth. His new book, Experimenting on a Small Planet, is coming out in December.
0: We begin with a look at some of the recent news and science.
1: The search for ecological and cultural reconstructionist explanations continues for the so-called collapse of the classic Maya civilization. U.S., U.K. and European researchers have constructed a proxy record of rainfall that spans the period of monumental building from about 300 to 1,000 Christian era. In a cave in southern Belize, researchers cored a stalagmite that was growing through that period. Using the ratio of heavy-to-light species of oxygen, the researchers were able to estimate the dryness in the cave, and roughly speaking, the cave was wetter when it was raining outside. But when was it wet or dry? That's where this research breaks new ground. As each layer of the stalagmite formed, some uranium from the environment was captured, and that uranium transformed little by little to thorium, tick-tock, at a very regular tempo. The amount of thorium in each layer dates that layer down to a couple of dozen years on the calendar. The team then compared the wetness over time with the cultural record. It's a spin on the Horn of Plenty notion of cultural flowering. In this case, according to this notion, when it rained a lot, populations rose and the land was more productive. The people used this extra productivity to build monuments and grow their population. When the climate dried up, people fought over resources and eventually no longer had the energy to build large cities. The research was published in the journal Science on November 9th.
0: Being alone for a while can help rejuvenate your soul, but being socially isolated for extended periods of time can really take a toll on your psyche and your behavior. New research shows that animals that are socially isolated for prolonged periods make less white matter, or myelin, in the region of the brain that's in charge of complex emotional and cognitive behavior. According to the research, the stress of social isolation disrupts the sequence in which the myelin-making cells, or oligodendrocytes, are formed. In the experiment, adult mice, normally really social animals, were isolated for eight weeks to induce a depressive-like state. They were then introduced to a novel mouse, one they hadn't seen before. Those who'd been socially isolated didn't show any interest in interacting with the new mouse. Changes in myelin have been seen before in psychiatric disorders, and so-called demyelating disorders also have been connected with depression. In recent research, myelin changes were also seen in very young animals or adolescents responding to environmental changes. The new research reveals for the first time a role for myelin in adult psychiatric disorders. That's according to the team of researchers at the University of Buffalo and Mount Sinai School of Medicine. The study was just published in Nature Neuroscience Online.
1: On the science calendar, tonight fans of Denver's Cafe Scientifique can head to the Wincoop Brewery in denver to hear cu health expert dr parole explaining some of the many ways that people can end up being part of the country's growing epidemic of diabetes what has she discovered so far parole says that happens somewhat differently in men compared to women yes fattening foods are a big part of triggering this disease but she says that sleep deprivation is too and so is a disruption of the vast microbial community that lives in the human gut and so is a person's exposure to viruses and to a growing number of environmental toxins. Dr. Perot will also describe how some people end up with fat within their muscles, a sort of marbled red meat condition that's common with diabetes. Find out more by attending tonight's Cafe Psy. It starts at 6.30 p.m. in Denver's Coop Brewery in Lower Downtown Denver. It's free, but if you want a seat, the organizers recommend that you come early.
0: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. If you've had your home energy audited and weatherized in the past few years, or purchased slick solar panels for your roof, you can thank in part President Obama's 2009 stimulus package. Renewable energy, renewable electricity generation has doubled in just three years. The stimulus package gave a huge infusion of cash and hope to the clean tech industry, funding solar and wind farms, biofuels, electric vehicle development, and more, and it gave a lot of momentum to private investors. But that stimulus money is about to run out and some government incentives for renewable electricity are about to expire. You'd think a second term for President Obama would bode well for clean technology, but that's far from certain. To help us make sense of the state of green tech today and how it can help fuel the economy and Heal the Planet, we have our guest, Clint Wilder, on the line from Sausalito, California. He's co-author, along with Ron Pernick, of a book called Clean Tech Nation, How the U.S. Can Lead in the New Global Economy. It was published a few months ago. Wilder is Senior Editor at Clean Edge, a clean tech research and advisory firm. Clint, welcome to How on Earth.
2: Thank you, Susan. Good morning.
0: Good morning. So why don't we start with, um, I know your book was published a few months before the election happened, but it just happened. And now that Obama's back, um, he's got his legacy to work on now, not re electioned. So I'm curious, what do you think um, for an Obama presidency in a Senate Democratic control? How does it bode for clean tech from your crystal ball? I mean, during the campaign, he certainly didn't mention much in the way of global warming and such, but how, how does it bode right now?
2: Well, I think uh, much, much better than the alternative.
3: Uh,
2: (laughs) I think the the whole industry breathed a huge sigh of relief uh, that Mitt Romney was not elected, based mainly on things that he said during the campaign, really denigrating uh, green energy and and playing up fossil fuels. uh, Remember, in in the first debate, that his three-line quote, I like coal, was very telling. Well, but but yeah, go ahead.
0: I mean, Obama has certainly touted clean coal, however one defines it.
2: (laughs) Yes, Uh, although I think it's somewhat less in 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 the past couple of years uh, than than back when he was campaigning in '08. Um, But I think the uh, we're we're cautiously optimistic that uh, you talked about uh, now Obama looking to his legacy. And I think that that's a really important point. Um, I think, based on what he campaigned on on oh8 and then what he did when he first came in, uh, appointing Stephen Chu as Energy Secretary, right. and as you point out. Uh, a lot of stimulus dollars going into clean tech. I think he, he really does support it, and he really does want to move the, the industry forward. Of course, there are other political realities he has to, to deal with uh, in the second term as well as the first.
0: Right. So So focusing on some of the key forms of renewables, I mean, we have wind now, pretty much the cheapest source of electricity of all, in some places anyway, and that seems a huge deal. What is it, 5 to 8 cents a kilowatt hour on average or so? And it seems... Really great news, but could we have the wind taken out of a sail, so to speak, when at the end of the year we've got this, um, well, the government incentive, the production tax credit about to expire, and I've seen just flat-line projections for 2013 after a really blockbuster few years. What, 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 what's your sense?
2: That's absolutely right. The production tax credit is a critical uh, subsidy for for the wind industry, and um, and even though it's a lot less than the fossil fuels get, and we can get into that later if you want. But, uh, yeah, it, it is due to expire at the end of the year. It has not been renewed. Um, there's going to be a huge push in the lame, deck, lame duck session to, uh, to get that renewed. In fact, there's a news conference later this morning in Washington, D.C., uh, with four governors par- participating, including your governor, Hickenlooper, mm-hmm. to uh, call on Congress uh, to, to extend this, and I, I want to point out, this among governors, uh, this has been an absolutely bipartisan issue. Very conservative governors from states like Kansas and Oklahoma, uh, <clears throat> in fact, Kansas Governor Brownback is one of the one of those speaking today, uh, have basically opposed the National Party and opposed candidate Romney on this. They know that this is <clears throat> this is about jobs and economic development in their states.
0: Right. And, um, so just outline briefly for listeners what the production tax credit gives wind,
2: right. wind developers. It, okay. So it's a, uh, it, it adds a couple of uh, cents, uh, per kilowatt hour, which really adds up uh, to in, uh, investors in project. And it's production tax credit because they get that once the wind farm begins producing power. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it, it really means the difference between whether projects go forward or not. And as you say, if, if it's not renewed uh, in 2013, the industry will uh, really uh, take, take a huge dive. This, this credit has expired in the past, and every single time it's, it's uh, really, really hammered the industry. And in fact, it, it already is. There have been layoffs, uh, including uh, at places like Vestas in Colorado right. already. Because in anticipation, or at least in uncertainty about its renewal, um, that that effect has already started this year.
0: Right. So it seems like we're at a major crossroads right now. Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned in your book, well, actually in your in your book, which was published a few months ago, it looks really promising in terms of investments. And as you just pointed out, with Vestas here in California, a lot of layoffs, um, not wind, but in this case, solar. We've got a bound has gone bankrupt, Tendril in the electricity area is hurting. Ice energy seems to be hurting. Um, why? Is it largely the pullback of government incentives? Because it seems like there's been quite a pullback also in um, private venture capital investments.
2: Yes, that's right. <clears throat> I think, you know, we have certainly have uh, a, a lot of economic uncertainty. The economy is better, but it's far from healed. And uh, there there has been... Uh, a a big uh, kind of freeze on uh, on private investment and a lot of it too is uncertainty about the election and uh, so we're hopeful that now that we at least have clarity uh, that some of that will start to to loosen up um, and uh, in into the solar industry specifically um, as as I'm sure you know the, the prices of solar panels have dropped uh, by about half in the past two years which is uh, really tough if you're cylindra or you're a bound solar and you're in the business of manufacturing panels and, and that's partly China's
0: China's role right
2: absolutely uh, but of course on the if, on the other end of that equation if you're a solar city or one of the, the, the other big installers, uh, anyone who's in, in, in the game of buying or installing solar panels, uh, it's, it's boom times. And we've seen the number of installations double um, last year in the United States and is on track to do so again. So in some ways, it, depending on where you are on the, in the solar equation, it's either, uh, you know, boom times or <laughs> very, very challenging.
0: So uh sounds like just one for thumbs up, you're saying, um Fall goes well with the production tax credit and, and the of course trade war with China we're almost in, then it could really bode well for jobs and for the future of the economy in the coming years. I, I
2: think so, but again, it, you know th- these are industries that are maturing, and so there's going to be consolidation. They're, they're not everyone's going to make it. And it, it's no matter uh, what happens, um, it's going to be continue to be challenging for solar manufacturers. Absolutely. We don't see the, the I think that the downward pressure on prices is something that will continue um, with uh, the, the just the amazing volume of production coming out of China.
0: Well, thank so, again, you. again, Yeah. Yeah. I want to say thank you so much. We've got plenty more to visit on this topic. Hope to have you back on. So that was Clint Wilder, co-author, along with Ron Pernick of Clean Tech Nation, how the U.S. can lead in the new global economy.
1: We are witnessing unprecedented changes to the Earth, great storms, and melting ice caps. Scientists say these events are related to the carbon we're dumping into the atmosphere. But even the scientists are stunned by the speed and scale of melting sea ice, ice caps, and sea level rise. Here to talk to us about why scientists haven't been able to keep up with Mother Nature is Dr. Bill Hay. Bill is professor, professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado Boulder. He just gave a talk at the American Geophysical Union's Charlotte meeting on estimates of sea level change. Welcome to the show, Bill. Good to be here. Hey, Bill, give us the basic rundown on sea level change. Uh, how bad is it compared to what the models have been predicting?
3: Well, the general idea has been that the maximum sea level rise during this century would probably be a bit over a half a meter. But in fact, when we look at what's happening, everything seems to be accelerating. And one of the biggest places for the acceleration to be observed is in the melting of Arctic sea ice. Now, the sea ice in itself doesn't change sea level, but it sets up the conditions that will allow the Greenland ice cap to melt much more rapidly.
1: Well, tell us, now, what we're doing here is comparing what's actually happening to climate models. Why are these climate models under-predicting sea level changes?
3: Well, they're uh, in particular, they're unpredicti- under-predicting uh, the changes in the Arctic because uh, Mother Nature has thrown in some wild cards that we didn't know about. Uh, there are things that are going into the uh, things that are happening that aren't included in the models, and they turn out to be very effective accelerators of change. One of those is the flow of the Siberian rivers into the Arctic. As the uh, polar regions warm, and by the way, the the connection between carbon dioxide and what's happening fits like a, uh, a key in a lock. It's exactly what you would expect from a carbon dioxide increase What we're seeing is global warming that takes place mostly in the polar regions. So uh, as the Arctic rivers, the Siberian rivers flowing into the Arctic increase their flow, they freshen the Arctic Ocean, and that raises its level a little bit. And what happens is that the uh, currents through the Arctic Ocean flush out the sea ice through the East Greenland current that flows along the east coast of Greenland, of course. And in response to that outflow, there's an inflow along the coast of Norway of the warm saline Norwegian current, bringing more heat into the Arctic. This is something that's really just so complicated that it hasn't gotten into models yet. There's a second thing that's going on in the Arctic. Uh, I, I spent a number of years working at GEOMAR, Marine Geological Institute in Kiel, Germany, and uh, there we were very interested, had a lot of people that were working in the Arctic, particularly with the Russians, on the uh, Arctic Ocean off Siberia. Uh, The um, amount of methane that is trapped in the permafrost is enormous, and that has started to come out on a grand scale in just the last two years, and that's obviously going to increase. Now, that's a very powerful greenhouse gas, that's going to add directly to the the heat input into the Arctic. Then we had a third thing that happened just this summer, which was very very odd. Uh, NASA took some photographs of a giant cyclone over the polar region. Uh, the Arctic has always had a high pressure system. That's an anticyclone because of the high. Rec- reflectivity of the ice, and it's really hard to get rid of that in climate models, even if you turn it to water, they still want to make a high-pressure system over the Arctic for reasons we don't quite understand. But at any rate, um, here with uh, the ice melt only partly underway, we have a cyclonic circulation develop. Now, the high-pressure system sends, war- sends cold air out to the south in all directions, protecting the Arctic. Turning that into a low-pressure system draws warm air into the Arctic and speeds up the melting. So these are powerful feedback mechanisms that are accelerating greatly what happens in the in the Arctic and will very soon begin to have an effect on Greenland.
1: And when the ice sheets begin to melt in Greenland?
3: Well, uh, total melting would raise sea level by about... Uh, Nine, uh, I beg your pardon, about seven meters, something like that, which would be uh, 20-something feet. But what we can expect is a a melting of part of that. Now, in the last interglacial, which was about 100,000 years ago, uh, the Greenland ice cap seems to have melted in a few hundred years for reasons we don't understand. And that was without any anthropogenic perturbation. So we know it can happen, and we'll just have to wait and see how fast it goes.
1: Now, there are some real dangers here, right? I mean, our climate models are blind to many processes that are going on. What's at stake here? Uh, You know, is, is it possible that the Earth is going to change states radically and rapidly? And we have about a couple minutes left.
3: Okay. Well, I think it's going to change state. I, I think for uh, a change of state is something you just can't quite imagine. Most of my work has been on the Cretaceous period, which was uh, from about 145 to 65 million years ago. It was a time when we didn't have ice on the poles. And um, it was very, very different. Uh, one thing that uh, one can expect... Uh, in the uh, relatively near future is to see some instability of the westerly wind systems that bring us our weather here in Colorado and some surprises, weather surprises, that we wouldn't expect. Uh, That's likely to happen because of the instability that's developing in the polar region right now, in the Arctic polar region right now. Now, the Antarctic is much more stable, at least at the moment, but uh, don't count on that lasting for a long period of time.
1: You have a new book coming out in December. Uh, give us a little preview of that, uh, who it's meant for and what it's about.
3: Well, it's meant for the layperson. The title is Experimenting on a Small Planet uh, with the subtitle A Scholarly Entertainment because I think you'll find it a lot of fun to read. Uh, it actually has uh, everything in it that you need to know about uh, yeah. Uh, a changing climate. It's written for the layperson, but it includes the introductions to mathematics, physics, chemistry, everything else that's uh, really relevant. Uh, it's uh, published by Springer. It will sell for less than thirty dollars, and it's a thousand pages long. But it's it's a lot of fun to read. Everybody who starts into it starts laughing from time to time. It's uh, it's a um, uh, my attempt. To uh, bring this to the public, and to my great surprise, I find out it's not only going to be read by laymen; it's going to be used in graduate courses in meteorology. So uh, uh, it's, it will be out uh, early in December, uh, published by Springer. And you can actually, if you just Google the title on the web, you can find out lots more about it. There are a lot of booksellers who are already advertising it.
1: Well, thanks a lot, Bill, for keeping us up to date on why climate models aren't quite catching what's going on with the Earth. We'd like to have you on again in the future. Thanks thank you so much for talking to us about why climate models are not doing that. Bill's new book is going to be published in December. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you
0: smarter. This week's show was produced by me and engineered by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Dave Matthews. And additional headline help from How on Earth, Shelley Schlender.
1: Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button.
0: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.
1: And I'm Jim Pullen.